0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released bonus episodes on Ghostbusters Afterlife and HBO's Succession, and we have another one coming soon on West Side Story. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash NextPictureShow.
1: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
0: Do you believe that someone out of the past can
1: enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us!
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps
2: and Genevieve Kosky.
0: Tasha Robinson is enjoying a safe, guided tour down a gently flowing river this week, but she'll paddle back to the podcast next time. As for the three of us, we're striking out on a river adventure down south at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. No kids, no dogs, no spouses, no phones or electronics, no food, no potable water, no maps, just us and nature.
3: Hold on a minute. I almost my kid, my spouse, and my dog. But it might at least be nice to have a phone in case of emergencies. Okay, how about maybe just one phone between the three of us? The pioneers didn't have
0: phones, but if you're going to be a baby about it, that's fine.
2: I have to say, Scott, I'm more stuck on not bringing food or potable water. The pioneers definitely had that stuff.
0: Who needs food when we all have crossbows and can spear fish? And I'm pretty sure you can just drink right out of the river. It's not salt water or anything.
3: I don't own a crossbow. The last time I tried archery was summer camp when I was 10 years old, and I missed the target completely most of the time. Also, on the off chance any of us catch a fish in the river, does anyone here know how to descale and debone? Are those the words, descale and debone a fish and cook it (laughs) over an open fire?
0: Yuck. No, no. Right. Good point. Uh, Maybe we'll just bring along some power bars from Costco or something.
2: I'm not drinking from the river either. Even if it looks clean, it can still have all sorts of bacteria, viruses, parasites. We could get really sick from that. Uh, Scott, how much research have you done on this trip?
0: All I know is that there's a dam being built there, the locals are hopping mad about it, and this will be our last chance to canoe down it. I figured we'd just pay somebody to drive my Honda Civic to a nice spot downriver and just wing it. What's the worst that could happen?
3: Do you really want to know what's the worst that could happen? Okay. Well, listen carefully to the description of the first movie in this week's pairing based on the James Dickey novel. James
0: Dickey, great poet. Didn't realize he'd written any novels. Maybe we could take turns reading it around the campfire.
3: You would not want to read this around the campfire. Anyway, based on the novel by James Dickey, Deliverance stars Burt Reynolds, John Voight, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox as four Atlanta businessmen who decide to go on a weekend camping adventure down a river in the remote Georgia mountains. The four of them have varied experience in nature, but Reynolds is a confident outdoorsman who acts as their de facto leader. The four men want to enjoy the river before it's dammed up, but they underestimate the anger of the locals who are being uprooted by the project and might hold city slickers like them responsible. When two such locals attack Voight and Beatty in the woods and Reynolds kills one of them, the campers face a range of problems, from worries about another attack and their culpability in a man's death, to the plain fact that they're unprepared for the challenges of the river itself.
0: Okay, uh, so I may have underthought the river adventure plan. Uh, What about the second movie?
3: That one you can stay at home and watch on Netflix. Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog nods to the famous dueling banjo scene in Deliverance, But here, the banjoist is a wealthy rancher in 1925 Montana, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and the other half of the duet is his new sister-in-law, played by Kirsten Dunst, who's struggling to master Strauss on the piano. And that's just the beginning of the macho hostility Cumberbatch's character directs at everyone within his sphere, especially Dunst and her son, played by Cody McPhee, a strange and reedy young man who seems conspicuously out of his element. Their relationship proves more complicated than it appears, however, and the movie itself takes a lot of unexpected turns.
0: So this week, we will absolutely stay in our podcast booths for Deliverance, and then next week, we will continue to not go outside for the power of the dog. Please stay here with us.
2: Where are you going, city boy? We'll find it. It ain't nothing but the biggest river in the
3: state. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasee River. Ed Gentry. He runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dean. Louis Medlock has real estate interests. talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual
1: funds. Where are you going? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river.
0: Author James Dickey was a renowned National Book Award winning poet before he was a novelist, and some of that poetry found its way into two of his three novels, Deliverance and To the White Sea, both of which use the survival adventure genre to engage in larger and sometimes more abstract themes. To the White Sea was never made into a movie, though the Coen brothers had wanted to adapt it for years, but Deliverance was adapted into a massive box office hit in 1972, two years after the book came out. Dickey himself even turns up in the end as a sheriff who can't find enough evidence to hold these city slickers on charges. Dickey was a lifelong Southerner. He's very convincing in the role. Dickey wrote the screenplay for Deliverance himself, and while the film is missing the first person narration of the novel, the basic action and themes remain intact. And in John Borman, who'd made the innovative crime film Point Blank, and a World War II survival tale of his own called Hell in the Pacific... The film got a director who knew how to work ambitious ideas through tough, masculine genre fare. The opening makes the cultural context for Dickie's adventure extremely clear. A fictional river in the North Georgia mountains is about to be dammed up. For four buddies from Atlanta, that means an opportunity to sneak in a weekend canoe trip while the river still exists as it always has. For the locals, that means dramatic upheaval and possible displacement from their way of life. In one minor but important detail, A small church at the riverside where the men finally make land in the end winds up on the back of a truck bed as they're trying to head back home. From the start, these city slickers are greeted with open hostility, even if they're slower to realize it than we are. The famed dueling banjo scene near the beginning of the film is the perfect example. When Drew, played by Ronnie Cox, winds up having his acoustic guitar strumming matched note for note by a young boy with a banjo, he sees it as a playful collaboration. But when he sees that same boy later on the river and gives him a friendly wave, he gets a mirthless stare in return. To the kid, their duel was a real one. One reason they're slow to pick up on the hostility is that they don't see themselves as city slickers, especially Lewis, played by Burt Reynolds, a macho outdoorsman who carries himself with an unvarnished confidence that dooms them in short order. Lewis drives a big four-wheeler with a Confederate flag license plate, and he's so certain of his instincts that he waves away an escort to the river itself, which leads them to an embarrassing dead end in the forest. Lewis and Drew are joined on the trip by Bobby, played by Ned Beatty, who Lewis repeatedly mocks for his weight, and Ed, played by John Voight, who serves as narrator in Dickie's book. The real trouble starts surprisingly early on the journey when Ed and Bobby's canoe, separated from Lewis and Drew's, hits land, and the two are confronted by a pair of mountain men, one carrying a rifle. As Ed is tied to a tree, Bobby is sexually assaulted by a man who humiliates him further by making him quote-unquote squeal like a pig. Before Ed is forced into a sexual act of his own, Lewis turns up and kills one of the assailants with his bow and arrow, leaving the other one to dash into the wilderness. Bobby doesn't even have time to process what's happened to him, because now the quartet has at least two more pressing issues. One, they've just killed a man, which is not legal. And two, they're open to further attacks so they opt to bury the body and keep moving downriver. From there, Deliverance becomes a combination of white-knuckle survival tale and morality play, with the canoes zipping down untamed rapids, the men facing devastating injuries and bloody conflicts, and everyone having to deal with the consequences of the situation and of their actions. Eventually, the burden falls most heavily on Ed, who can handle himself better in this environment than Drew or Bobby, but doesn't have Lewis's braggadocio. His hands shake when he tries to shoot a deer in the early going, because he doesn't have that killer instinct, but he needs to acquire it in order to survive. The question Deliverance ultimately asks is, at what cost? We'll talk about the price after the break.
1: Before you go, buddy, let me ask you something.
3: How come you only end up with four life jackets?
0: Didn't we have an extra one?
1: No. Drew wasn't wearing his. Well, how come he he wasn't wearing it? I don't
0: know.
3: Don't ever do nothing like this again. We'll come
0: back up here usual first question uh what is your history with deliverance and how does it stand up i, I know genevieve is a big fan <laughs> of the <this> film <laughs> as you see uh uh, uh, uh informed you're, me before. You're,
2: you're you're really putting me out there aren't you scott I uh am. I, yeah. yes
0: uh, so yeah let's talk let's talk about it at least you had seen it because i was like i was like i was yeah. kind of like this is pretty rough <laughs> we're gonna make we're gonna make people who haven't seen it sit through it and you had already seen it so uh yeah. so, so what do you think
2: yeah, I mean, I I I was a little grumbly about this pairing because I had seen Deliverance before, and it's definitely it would not make any uh, list of favorite movies uh, for me at least based on that viewing. And honestly, based on the second one, although I think my estimation of it did go up a little bit on this viewing. It's uh, I was I was definitely younger when I saw it for the first time, probably like in my early twenties, maybe even late teens, and I think I just. Honestly, I don't think I watched it well enough. Like, I think I didn't process a lot of the ambiguity. I think in the the deaths, particularly, and the sort of in Ronnie Cox's character, uh, the way that he dies. I think I read that at uh, the time as uh, what they think happens, which is that he got shot, and what actually happens is a lot more ambiguous, and I think makes the uh, you know survival elements of what follows a lot more interesting it is like for such i do find it for such a short film to be weirdly slow in stretches uh I'm, I'm thinking of the sequence of ed climbing uh the the cliff and overnight um that just seems weirdly draggy to me and and you know for a uh, For a movie that is, you know, kind of defined by fast-moving rapids, there are some kind of like sequences I find a little pokey, and of course there is the squeal like a pig sequence, which is something that I really never want to revisit, Mm. (laughs) but but I did for this podcast because I am a trooper. But like I said, I think the overall experience was like maybe a little more positive than I had been expecting, and I think I just maybe picked up on a little more of the nuance of what's happening and maybe could see that it was a little more than like a rough and rugged, you know, white knuckle survival tale. And there's a little more kind of inspection of of what that means happening uh, within it. It's still not really like a movie I particularly enjoy. I'll just kind of be upfront. And I think I've said Something to this effect on the podcast before, just like movies dealing with masculinity as a theme are just like not at the top of the list of things I find interesting. Like, I can enjoy them, you know, and I uh, have enjoyed uh, one such film recently, and we will probably be talking about it very soon. <laughs> okay, I was about to say, I was like, ooh, this is going to be yeah. a spicy second but, half. <laughs> but, you know, like, I mean, I was raised in a very feminine household, uh you know, like, I, I wasn't raised with men, and just like, masculinity was just not you know, it's not something I ever really thought a lot about as a theme as I was kind of growing up and becoming an adult. And I think, you know, I've managed, as I've matured, I think I can like, now see what's interesting about examining masculinity as a a, a woman. But I think I do maybe have just a little bit of resistance to that as like, what a movie is about but i'm getting over it and so i i was a little more on board for deliverance but this is probably my last feeling yeah. <laughs> at least for for a good long time
0: <laughs> I, i'm glad I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you softened on it a little bit uh
2: i mean you know we're we're we're, we're very
0: interesting from an anthropological angle <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh we we men um what yeah. about you keith
3: Well, as a podcast resident He-Man, obviously this is a (laughs) (laughs) film deep tomorrow. No, I do really like this movie. Uh, The first time I tried watching it, i sure I mentioned on the podcast before, but I used to tape movies off of local television when mm-hmm. uh, if they got a three and a half or four stars on their Malton's uh, TV uh, movie guide. And this was, of course, uh, not a film that makes any sense uh, when edited for television. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think I got very far into it. It also is, as you say, Jenny, It's it's a deliberately paced film. And if it's not the best presentation, you're really going to run into trouble because I eventually did watch it in college, but it was like VHS and Croft and Pan and Scan. And it was like, I appreciate it. I think at that point, I kind of only appreciated the thematic elements to it. I didn't really appreciate the, the filmmaking because so much gets lost in that. So when I finally got around to it on, on, on DVD or Blu-ray, whichever, that's what I got deliver it's what kind, of what kind of what it was about got the whole mood the whole vibe uh the look of it and everything uh so yeah i mean i think it's a really complicated interesting film and it's, it's something i'm looking forward to talking uh about but also i don't necessarily think it's a film that is you know I think, I think i think being on the other side of it and not necessarily being totally on board with what it's doing is is uh is itself an interesting position so i think we got a lot to, to talk over
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so too, and and I, and I think I almost probably had the opposite experience that, that you did, Keith. In that, you know, when I encountered it first, I, I probably did take it more as a survivalist adventure film, and and didn't really, you know, see or understand or process a lot of the thematic business around it, and um, and and, I, and that was kind of what I was able to get a lot more out of it this time it'd been a while since i'd seen it and and uh you know and i had read i've i'd read i'd read dickie's other well he wrote three novels but the the other one no one almost no one has read but but i had read to the white sea recently and i just and i i feel like that um he has an interesting way of using this genre to get at the sort of philosophical themes you might expect from a poet, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's, there's kind of a lot of interesting business here. And I mean, and it's all very foregrounded from the start with all the stuff about the dam really kind of that you, that's the introduction of the movie before you ever meet any, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: any characters. So that's obviously pretty significant. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, I find the balance of the film pretty strong. I mean, you know, the filmmaking is, is terrific. I think Borman is somebody who he proved himself here and then would prove later on his ability to shoot outside uh to make movies outdoors uh that were that are really persuasive and gripping and and evocative of their of their settings and i think you know he certainly achieves that here i mean we can maybe get into later the the depiction of of the locals but in terms of just the the texture of the place like the the look of the of that that setting it certainly feels right and and um and, and there are certain details like the detail i mentioned about the the church at the beginning, uh, or in my keynote, that I think I feel like that's a really striking, you know, image both ways. When you see it on the edge of its, you know, on planks at the edge of the the river, and then see it being driven away before they even get out of town. So that that element was of it was good. And in terms of the adventure, I, I mean, I guess maybe I don't quite find it as slow as uh, in spots as you all do. I, I feel like that the pacing is solid and and it maintains the, the tension it needs to maintain while also really giving you the gravity of the situation and, and i think for me i think the moment that really hit me hard this time was drew's death mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. because mm-hmm. of course it's not that really that ambiguous what what happens t- to him it's just you know to you know, i i think it almost struck me as especially poignant now because you know we're dealing we're in a moment politically where self-defense laws have been set up to where You know, you can say bring a gun into a protest and shoot people and be exonerated, for example. Mm. So when we have the situation where an incident has happened that has been that could be called self-defense or, or, you know, preventing certainly preventing additional violence after after violence had already happened, that it was in any way a killing that would be defensible for that to weigh as heavily as it does here on everybody and weigh on Drew to the point where he does what he does. That to me is significant.
2: I guess I want to examine like why you think that is so unambiguous. Because because I, I agree that's like the most obvious reading. But I feel like that character Drew is it's just such a sharp and quick turn for him from like how we see him presented at the, at the beginning. Like obviously he's you know traumatized by this murder, but also he's the one who's least involved, <laughs> you know, like, he—that's you know, and it seems so like such a rash and unexpected decision for that character to make that quickly. And I, I was almost wondering, like, is this could this be maybe more of an episode, you know, a panic attack or, or something, you know, something like that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know that I like the reading that he killed himself. And I kind of am, am Interested to th- like think about whether there are other ways to think about that scene.
3: So I think well, the the movie is interested in do, do, you know dropping these men into slots. You know, mm-hmm. and this is the the most civilized man uh, of them. And, and I think you know it makes sense for him to be. I, I, I I'm not sure it necessarily works dr- makes sense dramatically as you're pointing out, but I think mm-hmm. thematically it makes sense for him sure, to just become yeah. so so shattered by this experience. If there was a
2: a symbol and not a man. You yeah, know? And, but
3: there is a whole. There is. I mean. There is some ambiguity. I, it is so noisy that if there were a gunshot, you wouldn't hear anything. And and I think it's it's intentionally ambiguous because that you never get a definitive answer even when they find the body with his with his arm twisted so horribly yeah. around. I felt bad for yeah. Ronnie Cox having to pose like that for so <laughs> right? long. But yeah, I, I I definitely think at this point I think he's he's his symbolic value is probably uh heavier than 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 his definition of a care as a character.
0: Well, but but I guess the the one thing that makes it to me less ambiguous is that he he's not wearing a life jacket the, the yeah. other three well, are and, and well, they, they make note of that they're like why aren't you wearing a yeah. life jacket so well, to he me, was, maybe that, he
3: was already shot at that point Was that one way, way to read it no no no, to, that,
0: no they were they heading the down, the, they were yeah. down those rapids it's a slow it,
3: motion it, bullet it just it takes a while to
0: actually but in all seriousness I think I think that to me is was kind of the clincher in terms of like what happened it wasn't just kind of falling out of the boat because of the because you know they hit a bad spot in the rapids or maybe he took a shot that they didn't hear obviously the Rapids would be loud, uh, but the fact that he didn't wear, he didn't have a life jacket on, uh, seemed seemed like something had turned in his mind. Uh, it almost feels it, like
3: it's, it's a comfort. They're comforting them themselves with the idea that he was shot versus the reality yes, that's right, was right yes. in front of them.
0: No, yeah. I, see, that's exactly that was exactly my read. But but I think you could maybe, you know, criticize the film for not leviting what had happened way a little bit further, not allowing yeah. that weight to kind of press on him a little bit more, getting a little bit more get something getting something with him before that that happens because as as Genevieve says, you know, he is, you know, the least impacted of the four in terms of the actual incident. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I wrote in the opening that the deliverance is intended as a survival adventure with big ideas about progress, about culture, clash, morality, masculinity, violence. Uh, How well do these two things kind of come together for you? Does it does it function better as one or the other? Does it feel well, well integrated?
3: I think it works at both levels for me. I mean, uh, especially the the confrontation on the clifftop is so gripping and suspenseful and, and well-staged, like the gag of him. I mean, it's. I'm sure it wasn't the first time, but we've seen that done a million times since where someone appears to be a threat, but they've actually, they're actually dead, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it, but it's played so well. It just staged uh, really suspensefully, um in that too. That really worked for me. And if you haven't seen the film before, uh, you know Lewis being taken out of the picture effectively by that broken mm-hmm. leg uh so relatively early in the story is is quite quite the shock. It really changes the whole yeah. chemistry <laughs> of, of, the, of the outing
2: I think maybe I like that like like i i, I don't dislike Bert Reynolds in this performance i just dis, I dislike the character I think you're supposed to to mm-hmm. dislike the character and John Voigt as Ed, I think, is a lot more interesting of a, a presence to hang out with, which of course makes sense. He is our point of view character, uh, essentially. So, but like, when you don't have this sort of noisy distraction of of Lewis as this, you know, sort of blowhard survivalist type, I think it's a, maybe a little easier to tune in to these other aspects, these non-survival film <laughs> aspects that that we're talking about. And um we get that, of course, mostly through Ed. So I, I think like the film kicks in High gear, which is we've uh at least Keith and I believe is is still a fairly not that high. Slow, slow, not that high, but yeah, but, you know, like
3: I, a, I don't mind it not being sure. <laughs> sure, yeah. so I,
2: I, 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 yeah. th- th- Let me rephrase. I'll say I'll say it, it just clicks into place. I think yeah. um as as far as this balance that you're talking about once. Lewis is I mean, obviously, once the uh, inciting incident, the squeal like a pig thing happens. But I think once Lewis is taken out, and I guess, uh, Drew, for that matter, and once we're allowed to, you know, kind of really get into the headspace of Ed a little more strongly without all these other things happening, I think it feels like a deeper movie than it is at the outset.
3: I do really like the reversal with the understanding that the reaction is perfectly understandable and I would be so, so much worse. But the fact that that Lewis basically just spends the rest of the movie whining like a baby, (laughs) just just going from the toughest person to someone who's just, just whimpering
2: yeah well and i i was really struck by a an, an early piece of of dialogue like when they're still kind of setting out before things go bad and uh one of the characters i th- i think it's bobby says says to ed or something about you know lewis being a real you know outdoorsman sur- survivalist type and and ed says you know he you know not he's like not really you know like he 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 wants to be one with nature but he can't hack it i think is is the line
1: Mm. um and
2: and just kind of indicating that there is a certain amount of as as you put it in the keynote braggadocio uh uh, to lewis's uh survivalist shtick so um i i liked having that early line be paid off uh, (laughs) so so literally
0: yeah i mean there is a there is kind of a an almost because you know you don't necessarily want harm to come to the, the these guys but but there is a certain small comeuppance there about the, the humbling of uh, of, mm-hmm. of Lewis of, of somebody who is so certain of himself he's just gonna he knows where the river is he's just gonna drive right there and he doesn't you know he, <laughs> he mm-hmm. tries to do a dead into the forest and you know and he becomes just as ridiculous to the, the locals as somebody like uh, someone like Drew. Um, uh, you know who is who is spectacled and you know has this little acoustic guitar and seems like this kind of folky who, who's uh, running with these guys and almost seems like you know I, mean, I guess the, the other issue too is like how how friendly are these guys I mean do they do they do a lot of I mean they, I guess maybe oh. they they're golf buddies but like they yeah. they they do they do seem to be different. They do seem kind of an odd group when you really kind of bear down into the well, those. Yeah, well, I, I think
2: I think there's like some some dialogue to that effect. Like, uh, like Ed and Lewis. Basically, Ed is the linchpin, but mm-hmm. I think like none of the other three knew each other.
3: Yeah, but well, I think yeah, Ed knew Bobby. I don't really got a sense of how Drew fit in, but mm-hmm. but you get the feeling that Lewis is kind of like his. You know, strange friend that he hangs out with, but he get, he gets something out of it. Like there's that mm-hmm. whole exchange where Lewis is like, so "Why do you keep coming on, on these things with me?" Like it means mm-hmm. something to him that perhaps he's he's not really comfortable in, in admitting about himself in terms mm-hmm. of like uh, rejecting the the life. The to all appearances very nice wife with uh, the actress is actually Ned Beatty's wife, and it's actually Ch- John <laughs> Borman's son, Charlie Borman, uh, <laughs> is, plays this family. Charlie Borman now famous for adventuring around the world with Owen McGregor on 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 motorcycles for various. Uh, <laughs> Series. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, there's there's some there's some discontent there that perhaps uh, is by the end of the film um, put back into place. Maybe who knows?
0: Charlie was also the lead in in Borman's The Emerald Forest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, in terms of again these this mix of themes and adventure, though, I I I think it's bold to open the film the way this one opens to have to be able to set. The context for this trip, as frankly as possible, I guess. I mean, without being too ridiculous about it, it you're it talking about of, the voiceover, the voiceover, stuff? and just yeah. kind of letting you know, like, with this river and with this dam, and mm-hmm. and doing it in a way to, to where the images do suggest upheaval and in, in, in the name of, of progress, and and uh, you know, so so it was really kind of coming at you theme first, even though you know, in terms of the film itself is is a pretty straightforward you know a- a action movie that has these kind of beats these other these beats are sort of incorporated into it i mean i think and i think well incorporated i feel like everything works uh, uh very nicely t- together but 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 it does give you at least that sense that signal early on that this is going to be something a little different a little bit have a little bit more in its mind because i think i think this film, if you follow the plot in a pretty straightforward way, you know, doesn't necessarily have to have any depth at all. You know, because it's <laughs> because it's just it's about, you know, the, the this con- the conflict between you know dudes from the city and, and mountain men and and it's got and you know and there's a bunch of stuff involving you know there's two different r- you know water rapid trips and and uh, a lot of injuries and mishaps that they have to get over and some violence and it. It, it could be it could be that it could be that could be the movie and, and you wouldn't necessarily have anything to chew over uh at all and um that's not the case but it's also not the case that the that the themes are so dominant that uh that they you know take all of the juice out of the out of the film as an adventure
2: I mean, I think it's really important that that like opening that thematic uh, outlay at the beginning is is there, especially when it comes to the depiction of the locals, which is honestly like not great, <laughs> you know. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's I I I didn't uh, I I've neglected to say it at the beginning, but it's also like something that I I really resisted about this movie uh, at, at uh, my first time, and I still am kind of uncomfortable with to some degree. But mm-hmm. I think if you don't have that opening illustration of how progress is coming to basically you know ruin these people's <laughs> way way of life, or to to some degree. Their animosity toward these city slickers just becomes a lot more shallow and more villainous, you know? Yes. I, and then you get into, uh, even, even deeper, uglier, like villainous redneck trope, you know? Like it's still definitely here, but I think it's not as bad as it might be if, it, if we didn't have that context of what is happening in with the river and the dam and the towns.
3: As yeah. as one generation removed from uh, rural Kentuckians, am I allowed to, 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 <laughs> yeah, to, to no, I yeah. don't know. I I I I you know, I think you establish that hostility, you kinda understand who these people are. Yeah, they're all inbred violent people who haven't seen a town or whatever, but, but I don't know, I, you know, is, is it that far away from, from, <laughs> from a certain str- stretch of the populace? You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, it is ugly and stereotypical, but, but, uh, yeah, I, don't
2: I, I, I don't necessarily want to say like, you know, this is a type of, person that is entirely made up you know it, it, it's not it's more that there is just no variation really right. in how these uh There's these a kind of subhuman locals.
3: element to to, exactly. to to everyone yeah yes. it is it is not far away from from the i don't know if you've ever seen the movie wrong turn or any of the sequels but it's not that far away from that kind of uh thriller he'll have well, eyes or well, something like that
0: The right. film the film i think absolutely needs that scene towards the end though where 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 they're out of trouble and ed is having mm, dinner with the lodge yeah. With, yeah right with with people who are showing a great deal of warmth and hospitality to him. And, and, and he feels comfortable enough around around them to you know, burst out crying at the uh, at the table. Uh, uh, I don't think he would do that if he felt there was that this was not a a, a comfortable place for him to be. Uh, I think that's a crucial scene, um, and, and of course, it is, as you say, Genevieve, it is certainly crucial to set the film up as they do to know that those, those hostilities are in place. I do wonder, however, um, whether the film uh, would be more effective, I guess, if we felt that they were. A- if we felt that they were acting not as malevolent, you know, rednecks, but acting because acting out specifically because these are men who they can target, who, who, who mm-hmm. are, who they are furious, rightfully yeah. furious about well, the, the first
3: thing he says, are are you from the, was it the electric company or something like that? So like that definitely is on their mind. The first person they encounter, yeah. uh, you know, says that. So uh, I love that boarding house scene by the way. And and like, yeah, on, on like the making of doc, uh, Voight's, Vo- Voight for for you know I don't want to hear him talk about politics but he's very good about talking about his past roles and acting and he yeah. and I th- I think you know I, perhaps he's looking at it through a lens of coming home but he's like this is you know experience he's he's heard others describe where like when you come back for he likened it to coming back from war where you realize that life is not doesn't have to be all about survival and hatred you could mm. you can experience love and and companionship again and uh, yeah he's, he he plays that really beautifully it's a really good performance.
0: So so, I, I Genevieve, I, have you have you seen Straw Dogs? I, I, I'm curious to. I was curious if
3: you've seen that. Oh, you no, want to pilot on as a double feature? After uh,
2: yeah, that. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah You're yeah, you, you not want to see I, this, but I, I but because I, I, I have a question about it.
2: I know enough about Straw Dogs to know that one day on this podcast, I'm probably going to have to watch it on a Listed no l- Barry. I, I, <laughs> promise, I promise.
0: I promise. Yeah. I'm gonna pledge. I think Keith and I will pledge to you right now that we you will no not time. make you watch Straw Dogs. <laughs> oh, thank straw Dogs is like Deliverance <laughs> times times a million. So, I wanted to ask this maybe to Keith then, you know, because I couldn't help but, you know, make the, the connections between these two films. It's like, you know, this film, Deliverance, came out a year after Straw Dogs, which is another tale about a soft man mm-hmm. who has to prove his masculinity by fighting to the death against local tough guys. And I was curious if if there was just... Something in the water here, <laughs> like what it, it, was there a trend? What is what is being expressed about the American male psyche, you know, in the early seventies by these movies?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is maybe it's a generational thing. I mean, I mean certainly you have the, your seventies leading man, your Dustin Hoffman, and or your John Voight, less so than Reynolds, who's traditionally macho and came up through through cowboy acting. Uh, but but I think there's sort of a uh, understanding, uh, sort of reckoning as to what what a man was in the seventies, like, you know, it was, I mean, the, the, the go-to people always point to is Alan Alda is like Alan Alda versus John Wayne was sort of the conflict in some ways, but here's a straw dogs. Straw dogs is, there's so much ambiguity and deliverance and straw dogs is like the ultimate, you know, philosophically indefensible capital P problematic, but artistically brilliant film. So, but it also, you know, I don't know how far we're going on this road, but it is, it is the early seventies were just a, kind of um I, golden age is the wrong word but there's so much brutal sex scenes of sexual assault put on screen like like among the new freedoms opened up where there's a freedom to do that and different directors ran, ran with it i'm thinking of like high plane Drifter, which is a, a film i i a film I, I like a lot but it opens with with a rape scene of our sensible hero <laughs> on the street it, it is uh it's 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 a really fascinating time to, to look at that kind of stuff. I got getting too far. I'm probably getting too far afield here, but, but yeah, I think there is, I think if it comes down to anything, it's just sort of the changing notions of what men were. I mean, you also get with death wish from the same period. You get this idea that, that this person has like surrendered, like the sort of this, you're, you know, cowboy justice of the past for like the softer existence of the present, and he, he can't deal you know, he needs to find a, to, to call on his old like kind of gunfighter instincts to deal with the you know, exact revenge on on the people that got him. I think there's even, if I remember correctly, a scene where they go to like an old west town to uh, that kind of reconnects him with that too. So yeah, there's something. There's definitely something in 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 the water.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like this reactionary impulse that is so much a part of the American character of of you know if this is going to be the era of. Hippie dumb, and that's going to redefine masculinity, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, the, the reaction against that is going to be, you know, a film like Straw Dogs. And it almost made me appreciate what Deliverance does all the more because it certainly is not embracing a Lewis type. I mean, somebody who's, mm-hmm. you know, a Lewis type, if you were, you know, more competent anyway, would be perfectly suitable to be, you know, a. Masculine hero, you were champion, or, or you know, and uh, I think this this there's a sensitivity to deliverance that is, that is missing in, in in Straw Dogs, and that gives it a little bit of depth. I mean, there's there's tra- there's real tragedy here. There's a there's a moral weight to this film that is not really present in Straw Dogs. Straw Dogs is is a, is a very visceral, exhausting experience.
3: It's a ni- it's a nihilistic film in a way that this is not, for as, as dark as 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 this as this film
2: goes. Yeah. To bring it back to deliverance, I'm, um, listening to you talk and just, I keep thinking about, uh, what Lewis is wearing <laughs> on, on yeah. this, this, this sort of like slick black, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it almost looks like a, like a, uh, MCU superhero suit type of texture. And it's, it's black. And, uh, you know, it, I think, it's a very, I think, visual representation of uh, someone who is uh, not a hero, even though he is striking a, a heroic pose, you know, and, and in addition to that, it kind of marks him as an, an outsider because it is clearly like not an outdoors. I mean, I guess it's a wetsuit,
1: but yeah, it just,
2: yeah. but like compared to whatever, what all the other guys are wearing, it just, it very much feels like a costume that Lewis has has put on, you know, a tough a tough guy costume. Yeah.
3: Oh, I think you're right. I think he's bought mm-hmm. his identity. I think you know he, mm-hmm. he carries a very expensive bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know he's he's definitely someone who's I don't I don't know what the what equivalent that of truck. Dick's, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, what equivalent of Dick's Sporting Goods was. And really this <laughs> yeah, stuff, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, it's definitely someone who spends his time there as well. You know, it's it's less so for Genevieve, but but I, I think a, a, you can't help but like. Put yourself in the position, like which which one of these guys are you? <laughs> you know, and I, I, I had to come to the conclusion I'm not the Ned Beatty. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm the, I don't think I'm not so haughty and, and arrogant, but I'm I'm, just, I'm the, I mean I know I am because I. I, I I, I took a canoeing class in, uh, in, uh, in college, and my last credit I needed to graduate was my last phys ed credit. And, 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 and for my final, I was with the instructor, and I knocked us into the water, and he lost his glasses. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mercifully was passed anyway. I don't think they oh, want to hold that. someone back <laughs> for not graduating canoeing. But, uh, but yeah, it is, it is a, I think the intensity of this film is, is, it, is such that, that you kinda, it puts you in the middle of a situation in a way that's often very uncomfortable.
0: Ah, uh, so let's stay on the performances here, uh, because it's kind of hard to believe that this was Burt Reynolds' breakthrough role because he carries that exact same level of <laughs> masculine self-assurance into movies that never question it at all. Um, uh, so I was curious what you think of that performance, and then and the, and any of the other performances of the film that really kind of stood out for you.
3: He's kind of almost like it's almost like an answer performance to the macho tough guys. He play later in his career. Uh-huh. You know, it's almost it's like It's like, like a reverse. It's, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost comedy. It's comedy on roles he hasn't played uh,
0: yet. It's like Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love if that came before Billy Madison, basically. <laughs> but it's such a transfixing performance. I mean, the, the, the amount of star power there is so striking i mean you, you can't believe that he's not a star at that point because he because he just has that kind of command of the screen and it's not just the role it's just it's him he's i got, think it's the same got...
3: year as the cosmopolitan spread the famous uh oh, the, the bear rug yeah I oh, oh right which <laughs> wh-
0: wh- how did that was that separate from this or that how did it come about I don't know. Keith, I don't know. on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I do hold know at Googling, one point... Hold for Googling. <laughs> I, I do know
3: at one point that I owned... A, I used to go to this, this uh, book fair. It is 1972. And I just... You know, you could buy... At the end of the fair, you could just pack bags of books. and I, And one thing I had was... Letters to Burt Reynolds, which I really wish I kept. Like he was such a big star that they like a, a little novelty tie-in paperback was like it was like funny letters people have written to me. Oh man, <laughs> I wish I still had that. Um, it's probably like it's probably like four hundred dollars on Amazon right now.
2: Um, to go back to other performances, I mean, I think we I'm already get back to the movie, generally. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you I, I mean, bring... <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, you, you always wanted us just to bring us back from these weird discursive like trips through the seventies.
2: Uh, I don't know why, but no, just to uh, go back to performances like you asked if there were any others that stood out. And I mean, I think Void's obvious. We already kind of talked about, but I I do want to talk a little bit more about Ronnie Cox or just Drew as a character because, like earlier, Scott, you said something about how you know the these four guys are kind of all introduced as you know being kind of mean, you know, to the locals, and I'm I'm really struck, especially in the context of you know talking about the different shades of masculinity, I guess, uh, on display in this foursome, that like Drew, I think Drew is actually not. He's nice, like he. No, I, would, he, he I wouldn't. I would that about yeah, him. No. Yeah, like like he. Uh, he's trying to meet these people on their own terms. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's delighted by this dueling banjo thing that obviously he misreads. Certainly, there's a little bit of goofiness about him, and uh, you know, he's definitely the probably the most out of his element of the four. But I think there's just sort of a a pureness to him and a goodness to him that is probably what is at the core of his quote unquote decision to throw himself out of of the canoe uh, slash the screenwriter's decision for him to do that. But, you know, I think if that choice of his is going to make any sense, it only does because we have been introduced to this character as someone who is very... Like like I said, kind of pure and good and genuine in a mm-hmm. way that all these other guys are to some extent or another. Lewis, chief among them, you know, putting on a facade of, of masculinity, and Drew kind of just feels like a character who is comfortable with himself, which you know I think many would argue, like, is the best form of, of masculinity, you know, so um, but in he was, the context, he was the best of us, he was the best of us, you know, so um, and I think Ronnie Cox rises to the occasion of that character, you know, I don't think that there's a whole lot of layers there. But I think he brings like an aura to that character that makes it work.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I think Ned Beatty is incredible in this movie too, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's a really tough role to play. Obviously, it's a you know, <laughs> you know, the scene in the woods could not have been easy to shoot or, or to live with his whole career. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, that was a it, it became such a famous scene and such a famous line, and, uh, and you know, he couldn't. He's extremely and quite literally exposed in that scene, but I think what he gets right beyond the horror of that moment is the fact that he has to that he can't process that that he has to move on that he has to kind of like push that whole experience aside because because there are basic survival things that need to be done and i think there's a point later in the film where they're safe where the camera kind of finds him again and ned betty gives this look that's this is kind of wordless look that's just so shattering mm-hmm it's just such a beautiful moment. And I I think, I think it's a really well judged performance. And I think, you know, in terms of like his masculinity, I I think what ends up being the difference between Bobby and Drew is that Bobby is quite immediately coarsened. By experience, in mm-hmm. a way that that Drew isn't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and, um, and almost kind of numbed a little bit by it, in a way that that Drew isn't. Um, so, I, and uh, and I, you know, so I thought that was a subtle performance. But I think all four of the ma- of the leads are are excellent in the film for sure. Um, the, it's the performances are well judged you know, all around
2: what about herbert cowboy coward and, <laughs> and billy redden and our our you know our locals our, our locals you know? the, oh yeah. yeah well
0: i mean persuasive i guess yeah. i mean i didn't think i didn't I mean it wasn't like thinking oh those guys can't carry off you know being yeah. uh, being malevolent hicks yeah. uh i thought yeah. they were, were quite good and, and i mean it, you know when you find you, you find people to cast like the the boy with the banjo. It's like all right. I mean, you that is that is the the look of that character. The look of the, of the of the people they in, encounter. I mean, is like you know. I mean, you, you're not. That's not a Hollywood casting session that yields those those, no, <laughs> those actors no. at all.
2: Yeah, I, I I looked a little into uh, Billy Redden, who who plays the the banjo boy, just because I was was curious. So first of all, not him playing the banjo. Uh, oh, it's, it's it's a a rig uh, actually. And now I, I I I haven't gone back to look since reading this, but apparently it was uh, the old someone else's arms through the shirt playing the banjo trick. Um, oh, how about that? Interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he uh, he didn't play the banjo. He was cast for his look, which, uh, you know, but it basically, uh, because of that, he's like, he's had like cameos as banjo (laughs) players, like throughout throughout the years. But he's, it sounds like he'd be like, I don't know, I kind of want to like, know more about what happened to Billy Redden, because he just sounds like one of those People who you know got swept up in a memorable film slash cultural moment that followed him for the rest of his life, but he didn't necessarily benefit from it in any great way. And those stories always I find uh, both interesting and and sad. So
0: yeah, I mean, he was huh. not going to be in Smokey and the Bandit or the Cannonball Run. Actually, might have <laughs> been he, he could have <laughs> been in those, I guess. Mm-hmm. But he, but no, he wasn't going to be the lead anyway.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, Herbert Cowboy Cowart, by the way, just a little bit trivia was was uh, worked with Burt Reynolds at like an, an old West ghost town, like to, like like a tourist thing, uh, and like he re- re- remembered him when they were casting this role, and that's how he ended up that. Apparently, he's now a, a colorful local in his local South Car- It is South Carolina town
0: incredible well uh i'm sure we'll have other uh fun uh facts uh and weird (laughs) obscure things to bring in uh when we when we uh talk about uh deliverance in relation to the power of the dog uh but for now we'll stop here and and come back for feedback Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. Our episode on Last Night in Soho continues to draw a lot of good feedback, so we're going to get to a couple new responses here. A warning to our listeners, if you have not seen Last Night in Soho, you may wish to piece out of this week's podcast now. Uh, Genevieve, what do we have first?
2: Listener Kyle from Chicago had a long email about Last Night in Soho and other matters, but we wanted to focus on one thought in particular about the ending and the film's attitudes about sex work. Kyle writes, You talked a bit about it in The Connections, but I'm curious what you all make of the ending's multiple morality slash sympathy swings from seemingly sympathizing with Sandy's Johns, all of whom it seems fair to call rapists, to having Ellie agree that, quote, they deserved it, to finally having Sandy go down at the house and essentially be punished for her misdeeds. Of course, there are movies that manage the complexity of a woman villain while being genuinely sympathetic to her. I think many Giali do it. I think Lars von Trier's Antichrist does it. And I think Miss 45, which I know Scott referenced on the Promising Young Woman episode, does it beautifully. I admit Miss 45 is a favorite of mine. That's Kyle saying that, not me, Genevieve. <laughs> 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 Kyle continues. But the multiple swings of last night in Soho and the fact that they focus on a pretty thinly sketched and mostly agency-less Sandy until the twist end up feeling weird and gross to me. Well, guys, Any what thoughts? do you think? My first thought is that I am, while I'm always glad for feedback, I am shocked that we have gotten so much uh, feedback on Last Night in Soho, a film that it seems our listeners do not really care for and we have gotten none on Persona, (laughs) but the other film in that pairing. But uh, maybe, uh, I guess, maybe films that, uh, you know, have sort of, uh, maybe flawed films such as Last Night in Soho uh, prompt more uh, responses such as this, but I mean I think what Kyle's talking about here is definitely part of the third act problems that we uh, discussed in uh, in in that pairing mm-hmm. of a film that you know we I think we all agreed uh, went to some degree went off the rails uh, at the end, mm-hmm. and I think probably like when. People talk about not liking the Sandy reveal. It probably has to do with this because it's just it's asking you to recalibrate how you think about so many characters so quickly. And, you know, there's not necessarily enough like foundation laid, I think, for that pivot to feel sturdy. Is this metaphor working? I don't no, know. Yeah, but it's working.
0: <laughs> I, I'm with yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. You twisted um, me in a
0: knot a little bit, but that's what this is all about. Uh, that twist.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think Kyle lays out here, like, like I said, a, a flaw of the uh, movie that we didn't necessarily dive into in these terms, but I think you know is kind of more broadly a part of the problems with the third act twist.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think you you don't have you know, the, the, the f- films that he mentioned, films like Antichrist and, and Miss 45, which I also quite like, they are trying to do different things. I mean, they're, they're making this, they're making these traumas, the most important part of the movie. I mean, that's, that's what those movies are about. And, and, and here it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of playing around with genres, a lot of play, playing around with fantasy. And part of that, particularly with regard to genre is you know laying hitting you with this twist at the end hitting you with something big which is a which you see a lot of in you know the italian films that it references they there's always there's often some fairly you know ornate twist going on and, and um and i think what happens what ends up happening the, the bad consequence which is the consequence that unfortunately befalls last night in soho is that it just confuses a lot of things you thought the film was trying to say and <laughs> it, it, it twists it all around it, it doesn't seem like the film has its it's for ba- lack of a better term it's shit together when it comes to <laughs> this very important topic which is uh, 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 which is sex work uh, in fact when people were, were talking about even initially started bringing up criticisms about depictions of sex work in Last Night in Soho. I had to like kind of re scramble and think, oh, what? The film's about that? <laughs> like, because I, I never really considered watch, I, watching it. Watching, I never really considered that the film was even thinking about that as a topic.
2: Yeah. And I do, I guess, want to push back maybe a little bit on uh, Kyle's parenthetical about Sandy's John. So she says all of whom it seems fair to call rapists. Yeah. And I, I that's uh, I, I feel a little harsh in the context of sex work. Um, I think, you know, Sandy is definitely a character who has been, you know, taken advantage of. And her pimp, for <laughs> lack of a, a better phrase for uh, Matt Smith's character, is, uh, you know, certainly, you know, a, a sexual predator but um presuming that they the money changed hands which we, we see happen you yes. know i don't think it is quite fair no. to characterize what happened to her as rape
3: I, that's uh, right i think i like this movie better than most people on the podcast, but, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, it, I, having read some of those criticisms, yeah, I, I do, I do. do I, I wonder if it engaged with a more serious topic than the film itself could really take on Cause I actually, I'm kind of as horny as they are. I, I like the twists, but I think, you know, that twist brings in a whole, it kind of shifts from being, about the dangers of being a woman in the city that we've seen so far via the main character story to being about uh sexual exploitation in a way that that might be too heavy for the the uh the building the the the, the film that's constructed uh so far but uh but you know yeah uh, and it feels uh, like it's, a it's
0: quotation it's, you know it feels like just like a gesture that the film has to make because it's this type mm-hmm. of film. <laughs> You know, yeah. it doesn't necessarily fully process as much as you would hope the implications of what it's actually saying here. Um, so interesting to think about, you know. And I'm, I'm glad our our listeners are you know coming back to this movie, uh, which I think kind of does, deserves a, a lot of you know attention, maybe positive and negative. I think this is a very interesting film and, and one of the few kind of studio films we've seen this year of this kind of like that seem as meaty and kind of interesting. Um, So uh, thanks for that. But we actually, we we're not done yet with last night in Soho. We have one more uh, thing here. We have a voicemail from Isaac about an important reference that he believes Edgar Wright makes towards the end of the film. Let's listen.
1: Hi, my name is Isaac. I think the conversation in general about last night in Soho has been about what the movie's gotten wrong. And then a certain amount of spot, the reference, and I'm surprised that one particular reference hasn't been recognized as much. I don't know if it's because it's too obvious to mention or people really did miss it. But I thought that the ending where an actually elderly woman with a knife is forcing a potential victim up the stairs is a really clever reversal of the staircase scene in Psycho. And uh, because this is a short message, I'll, I'll let you all draw out the potential echoes and implications uh, of that reversal, and then lastly, I think when Miss Collins goes up in flames, no, on the face of it, it's not realistic, but it is probably a reference to Miss Havisham. So, uh, thank you for letting me get both of those references off my chest.
3: Yeah, way way too obvious. We were all we just didn't feel like mentioning those. So, uh, <laughs> no, those were really good observations. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah, I I I it's one of those things where you feel like you feel like the reference is like you're just like one neuron misfiring from from uh from getting, and, and I'm glad to, I'm glad to have those uh, pointed out.
2: Well, I think also with a filmmaker like Edgar Wright, who is such a sort of uh he's often a deep cut guy with his mm-hmm. with his reference points, you know, in in psycho in particular is just such a looming cinematic reference point. I like obviously it's a it's a dumb thing to overlook but i think maybe it was like so obvious that it was easy to overlook i don't know <laughs> i mean i
0: i don't know i don't know if it's that obvious i'd have to see it again mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. you know that particular, oh, i can
2: picture it in my head it you, is and it does feel yeah. like
0: it does feel exactly as described the reversal yeah. of that dynamic yeah. that is so yeah. interesting tag so thank you isaac for that and that miss <laughs> havisham thing makes a whole lot of sense as well so uh mm-hmm. That is exciting that we now have these among uh, many, many other references in the film to put in our pockets and, and uh, potentially impress people with. So, uh, Isaac, thank you for that. Uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response at a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. that's it for this episode of the next picture show In our next episode we'll look at jane campion's the power of the dog another film about the effects of toxic masculinity look for that episode next tuesday or you can subscribe to the next picture show on apple podcasts spotify or your podcatcher of choice if you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra next picture show written and recorded content come support us on patreon at patreon.com slash next picture show find us at nextpictureshow.net. And follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we love the way you wear that hat.